Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you try to combat stress or deal with stress cognitively with words, it's not as effective as if you come out of your thinking mind into feeling your breathing. Yeah. Because it, just by making that shift, you know, that's Dan Brule's drop it technique, right? Yeah. yeah. Just take a big breath in, hold it for a second, hold it, tense everything up, and then go, ah, <sighs> so much better. The seven chakras, swirling vortices of energy, positioned throughout our body, from the base of the spine to the crown of the head. For thousands of years, this ancient wisdom has been passed on from master to disciple. What are the functions of these energy centers? And could these chakras help you unlock your destiny and find your true purpose? Welcome to My 7 Chakras, and now your host, Aditya Jai Kumar. What's up, Action Tribe? AJ here, host and founder of My 7 Chakras, my7chakras.com, the show where we help you calm your mind, relax your nervous system, and experience deep states of bliss. In today's episode, we talk about some amazingly powerful topics such as yoga, Buddhism, philosophy, the nervous system, stress, distress, and how to experience deep states of bliss and peace and calm, uh, topics that I'm sure that you are going to enjoy as well. So if you are watching us live right now, maybe it's on YouTube or Facebook or some other platform, Make sure that you let us know that you're here and also share this uh, stream so that we have more people that can attend live or even uh, attend on demand later on. And if you're listening to this on our podcast and if you love our work, then make sure you hit the subscribe or follow button because that allows the platform and tells the platform that you like our show. And once again, we come in front of more listeners. All right. So let us know and give us some support. And with that being said, let's bring on our special guest for today, Joseph Robertson. So Joseph Robertson has taught yoga, breathwork, and meditation for over 29 years. He was a featured presenter at Cabo Breath Fest in Feb of 2020, the Breathing Festival in Feb 2021, Breath Hub's Global Breathwork Conference in May of 2021, as well as Floyd Yoga Jam in September 2021, and he has published his first book, One Half Breath at a Time, Discover How to Turn Stress and Anxiety into Calm 
ease, productive power, and joy with breath-centered practices in 2018. And he's currently completing his third book, Breathing, Serenity, Courage, and Wisdom, Polyvagal-Informed Breath-Centered Practices. So as you can imagine, today's episode is going to be centered in and around all these amazing, relaxing practices um, using the breath, but really diving into the nuances and the different subtopics within this uh, umbrella term that we call as breath work. But before that, Joseph, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, you know, for inviting me to do this and giving me the opportunity to share breath work and yoga and meditation and transformation and all of those things that you certainly seem to be a little interested in as well. Oh, definitely. And uh, partly, I appreciate the fact that you've written such a wonderful book or 300 pages, which I'm hoping to explore, you know, as we proceed in this interview, but we start the interview with the very beginning. So where were you born and brought up? I was uh, born and raised in uh, North Carolina in a small village called Wentworth, which is outside of a small town called Reesville, which is, it's in the north central part of North Carolina between Greensboro and Danville, Virginia. So I grew up here and then I left to go to art school, you know, when I graduated from high school and spent the majority of my life in and around Baltimore. And now I'm back here in North Carolina where I grew up. And what was it like growing up in your household? I loved fishing, playing basketball. And then this weird thing happened, you know, in the ninth grade. Well, this eighth grade, a teacher taught photography for an entire week in eighth grade science class. And at the end of that week, I sold my mini bike to another kid, took the $65 and, and bought everything I needed to turn my closet into a dark room. And then in the ninth grade, I started writing poetry. And, you know, that's where the writing started. So the art started in the eighth grade and the writing started in the ninth grade. And yeah, the rest is kind of history. Since you ask about, you know, where I grew up and all that, you know, sometimes I've been asked, you know, well, how did you get started with, you know, meditation, breath work, yoga, all that business, right? So it actually started when I was, I think, 14 years old and happened kind of quite by accident. For some reason, I thought it would be an interesting experiment to lie in bed in the dark and to see how long I could lie absolutely still, not move a muscle, you know, not scratch my nose, not do anything. And long story short, the next thing I knew, I was traveling. It's almost like I discovered this other world quite by accident. I don't know if you're old enough to remember the Twilight Zone, but I blame it all on the Twilight Zone. <laughs> Maybe I'm not old enough to remember. Was that a TV show or something? Yes, The Twilight Zone was a TV show, you know, The X-Files? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was sort of a precursor to The X-Files. All these weird supernatural or unexplainable things. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, so yeah, I feel lucky and blessed to have, you know, literally kind of fallen into this whole endeavor interest of uh, consciousness and meditation. Yeah, at 14. So it seems like uh, you had some kind of a mystical slash 
spiritual experience at this point. So where did this yearning come from? Was there something happening in your family or were you going through some challenges or discomfort or was it just a existential uh, yearning to know, right? Who are you and things like that? I've tried to figure that out myself. And, you know, there are a couple of things, you know, that I, around that time, maybe 13, a little before that, I declared myself an atheist. I was and never, never involved a lot in the church. My family were not really church people. You know, the, the Baptist church is literally right down the street. And mm. I remember another kid in my class trying to convince me to get baptized and join the church. And the more I listened to him talk about it, the more it just seemed like he was parroting what somebody had told him to say, and that I just didn't buy it. You know, it just didn't, I don't know, it didn't seem, it seemed like a, honestly, it seemed like a charade. And I decided that the whole, you know, the whole church thing was, um, there was something missing, you know. And I think that because I declared myself an atheist at 13, that it kind of, there was a hole, a vacuum, you know, like, okay, take that out. So there's nothing, right? And for whatever reason, something came into that space. You know, I mean, I remember, boy, you're really taking me down memory lane now. I remember <laughs> around the same time sitting in my bedroom, I guess I was trying to meditate. I was sitting in the corner. Why would I be sitting in the corner? I don't know. Maybe I was writing a poem or something. And a thunderstorm came along and this bolt of lightning hit very close. You know, it's one of those things where you see the flash and almost instantly, bam, you hear mm -hmm. the thunder, which means it's very close. And for a second, I was frightened and, you know, like, okay, that could have been me, right? And for some reason, the next thing I said was, okay, I'm not scared anymore. What do you want me to do? And that's as close as I can come to explaining it, you know. But it felt like, you know, I think the reason that I really gravitated to Eastern philosophy, Eastern religions, yoga, meditation, all of it, um, was because of the emphasis on experience, on the emphasis on not accepting what someone tells you, but doing the experiment yourself mm -hmm. and seeing what happens, you know, like a scientist, like a, you know, more of a scientific inquiry. And to me, that made sense. And, you know, I started doing the experiments and I started having experiences and a certain kind of knowing or at least a taste of that knowing was possible myself, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, back when you were a child, the idea of having a felt experience and you being in charge of it and using or exploring your consciousness and your awareness might have felt really, uh, you know, inspiring, like you were going on an adventure. And because you had that very close, you know, close experience to death, potentially, it might have uh, felt even more real to you. And so in your book, you know, in speaking about breathwork, you write, from there, the sky is the limit, 
they can take you to heaven into altered states of consciousness as high as the stars as i was after one breath intensive in india i call it my mountain top experience i can only describe it with poetry words bliss the garden of eden the peace that surpasses understanding so talk to us about this experience where were you what were you <laughs> doing and how did you find yourself there okay this happened in india in pune in 2001 and i went to pune to study at the ayengar institute the okay. ayengar yoga institute in pune i mean i knew i did not like the ayengar yoga institute okay it didn't work for me and i was quite unhappy i stayed there for a week or so took classes and i got i'm trying to remember the sequence of this i got sick you know from eating the wrong thing and yeah. i got over that and then sunday the first sunday i was in india or the second sunday i was in india it was my birthday february the 11th and i felt better and so i decided to take the day off i mean of course i knew that the osho meditation center was also in pune mm -hmm. and i knew that i was going to at least check it out even though i'd had i was very skeptical mm -hmm. about the osho center and what i'd heard about osho anyway long story short i went to the osho center on that sunday and long story short i moved across town to koregan park to <laughs> to stay at the osho center i never went back to the ayengar school okay um, and while i was at the osho place i took a group workshop intensive and the name of it was breath open to feeling okay? oh okay and it lasted for 3 days or 4 days and it was intense doesn't cover i mean we did that we danced we did yoga we talked we breathed you know i had done pranayama yoga pranayama i had already been to thailand and studied vipassana buddhist meditation mm -hmm. you know so i had done those things but this was something else you know this was mm -hmm. cathartic you know the kind of open mouth circular breathing connected breathing i mean we would do this for i don't know 20 minutes 30 minutes 40 minutes and so first day at the end of the first day mm -hmm. we have shavasana at the end everybody lies down i'm lying there eyes closed i feel the cool marble floor under me you know and it's not dark yet so there's you know there's still light coming through my eyelids and then all of a sudden this darkness came down over me. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what it was, but all of a sudden I was in darkness. Now, later I knew that it was a sheet being placed over me, okay, by the assistants, but I did not know this at the moment. So anyway, this darkness comes over me. I'm lying there, and next thing I know, I'm in my crib. And I don't mean like having a memory. I mean, I was looking up from my crib seeing the side rail with the you know with the 
rods, the dowels, looking up at the ceiling in mm -hmm. my crib. And I was calling out or crying out and there was no response, no answer, nobody came. Mm -hmm. And I'm bawling, I'm crying uncontrollably. And I don't know how long the crying went on for. It was a long time. And I, I just remember vaguely hearing murmurs, the other people in the room, like, what's going on? I heard a snicker, you know, like, what's up with that guy or something, you know? And the next day, the start of day two, the leader, the teacher, he said to me, you don't have to, but do you mind sharing what happened yesterday? And I said, all I know is that I was in my crib. And so that was sort of the break. That was the breakthrough. That was the, you know, that was connecting with a very deep early experience that has shaped me, has shaped my life, has shaped my sort of emotional nature, you know. And I felt so much freer after that. You know, it's like things opened up. I was able to participate mm -hmm. more freely and more fully, right? And then on the third day, we'd done, you know, more X, Y, and Z and breathing and lion's breath for 30 minutes across from another person, eye to eye, so many things. Anyway, on the third day at lunchtime, everyone got up, walked out to go to eat. And I was so blissful. I don't know another word for it, but I didn't care. I was not interested in eating. I remember on my way out, way out, I leaned down and I hugged the teacher and I said, thank you so much. And he said, you're welcome. This is just the beginning. And I was just, it was like I was glowing radiant, you know, like there was no monkey mind. There were no thoughts in my head. I was just, and I walked out through a different door onto a little, there was a little garden just outside this building. I didn't even put my shoes on. And I just stood there. I just stood there for mm -hmm. the entire lunch hour and was just happy. And, you know, I can still remember the flowers. I can remember the birds. I can remember the warm air. You know, it's mm -hmm. like I'm, you know, just talking about it to you right now. I'm back there. Yeah, that was extraordinary. Yeah. I find that when it comes to this particular podcast, it seems like all roads lead to Pune. In particular, <laughs> in particular, Korigao Park, <laughs> because I've spent a lot of time in Pune. I studied there and particularly in Korigao Park. And I know about the Osho Ashram and I know about German bakery and I know about ah, the German bakery. Yes. Right. All the meditation and mindfulness and the unique vibe of that place, at least till about eight years back or nine years back before the bombing that happened. Uh, but it's really incredible, you know, like you pointed out when one experiences these you know breathwork journeys it's fascinating the place and time that it can take you and the effect that it has on you in terms of time dilation time expansion and taking you to a different place and when you come out of that um, you feel so great you feel almost rebirth i know in your book you talk highly about dan brule as well right i think you attended a couple of his workshops in india and he's been on our show multiple times yeah yeah, yeah. And he also has this way of, you know, just connecting our listeners to a place that is transcendent beyond time and space, um, which is why I keep saying, you know, everything leads back to Pune and Koringa Park. Can I ask you, Yeah, yeah. have you had Gitan on your show? 
because of some schedule conflict we haven't been able to make it yet but uh okay. it's, it's in the pipeline i just i just want to add a little detail to my story okay <laughs> when that sheet came down over me yeah that was gitan oh so he was with you he was an assistant oh interesting i i'll ask him once i once <laughs> i have him on <laughs> yes that was gitan i've known gitan since then that was 91 did you say Which 2001 sorry 2001 okay 2001 and so you know you talk about the osho active meditations so how are they and you classify the different types of breath works or breath work um, meditations as well right you have the heart oriented you've got the mind oriented and you classify the osho active meditation as the heart oriented type of meditation so why are they heart oriented When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. you know the simplest way of saying it is that in my experience anyway mm-hmm. that yogic pranayama and buddhist vipassana i don't want to say they suppress emotion but they bypass it it's almost like emotions the emotional life is inferior and that kind of suppression I was very good at when mm-hmm. I got to Pune you know that I didn't need any more of that cuz I had learned very well I was very adept at suppressing my own feelings mm-hmm. and so that's one thing that made the Ayengar Institute toxic to me and when I got to the Osho center I I don't know whether to call it the Osho Ashram or the Osho Meditation Resort. <laughs> okay. But, you know, it was such a night and day contrast. Mhm. And you know, the Osho active meditations and I call them heart oriented because they really target breaking through, breaking down the armoring mm-hmm. that we tend to build up. The you know the crust of you know the kind of armoring that gets built up in the process of growing up in the process of you know being disappointed being hurt being rejected all of these little traumas large and small really contract the emotional you know emotional expression you know like i even like as a boy growing up you know you're not supposed to cry mm-hmm. and that is pushing it down mm-hmm. and so anyway i found especially at the osho center that was almost their target their specialty you know take a hammer and break this cage yeah. and you know like osho said i'll break the cage for you and let the gorilla out <laughs> so, um <laughs> but there's a great fear around losing control there's a tremendous fear around losing control and you have to get past that fear because that's what keeps your heart in a cage 
That's very, very true. I mean, I think uh, living in society, we are used to, and we feel safe and secure around some level of certainty. This is what I expect. This is what I want to happen because uncertainty is not good for our safety and livelihood. And our sense of self is contained within that safety, right? And that can get boring sometimes because you, you get up and go to work and you come back and everything becomes very predictable. But at the same time, especially in these unfamiliar territories, I guess, once you cross the chasm of what is normal and the status quo, when you enter maybe like an Osho ashram, so much of uncertainty, right? <laughs> yes, but the critical piece yeah. is the safe container. Okay. So that's so, also there. Yeah. You know, which is why anytime you enter into any kind of deep breath work or, you know, whatever the modality is, yeah, it's only going to work. It's only going to be successful if you feel safe with yeah. the person who's leading and you feel safe in the room. Yeah. You know, out here in the world, there is so much uncertainty right now with COVID pandemic, with you know, political unrest with climate, with, you know, so many things, there's so much uncertainty. Of course, we need to maintain some certainty in the world. But to do this kind of work, I just think it's really critical to be clear that, you know, if you don't trust the person who's leading you in breath work, then yeah. it's not the right person for you to be doing it with. Because before I signed up for that breath workshop at Pune, I got to meet the teacher, Bodhi yeah. Ray. And I remember saying to him, mm -hmm. I'm a little scared. And he looked at me and he said, I know, just a little courage. And I knew in that moment that I could trust him. Mm, that's very, very powerful. It almost feels as if whether it's breath work or for that matter, Tantra or maybe even some kind of plant medicine where we're for our own personal growth, wanting to go beyond our comfort zone. It's very imperative and it's almost based on integrity that we have that conversation or that dialogue with the person who's holding space for us. It's even beyond words, right? Like we know that no boundaries will be crossed and that they have our interests and that they'll make us feel safe. And, you know, they will encourage us to go beyond our comfort zone. But at the end of the journey, you know, like there's some kind of sacred contract, right? That needs to be there. Yes. yes. If you are embarking on this, uh, what would uh, arguably be like a hero's journey? Yes, because I've had my first LSD experience. I mean, it was wonderful. I don't yeah. regret it whatsoever. But the person who was kind of helping me, leading mm -hmm. it, turned out to be not. He started playing head games. Oh. In the middle of this. So I, I'm very picky, you know, sort of hand, you know, who I open myself up to or hand myself over to for anything like this, you know, whether it be yeah. plants yeah. or brass work or whatever. Because it could cause re-traumatization as well, right? Because you're so vulnerable, Absolutely. you're opening up, right? And yeah. if in that space where you're, you're, I don't know where you are, you're in the middle of nowhere, out in the void, you sense something, it's, yeah. So I totally agree. And probably after that, you were like more careful and uh, right uh, speaking to who you're, who you're working with. Makes sense. Yeah. You know, and it's, um, and I don't know if we want to get into this or not, you know, but I'm also a Kundalini yoga teacher. I'm working with, uh, I'm part of the group Evolving Kundalini that's led by Ravi Singh. And 
there have been so many yoga teachers at this point who have yeah. been taken down and uh, dethroned and, you know, exposed. Yogi Bhajan is just, you know, the latest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's again, it's this whole thing about trust. And yeah, it's very traumatic when that trust is violated. And speaking about trust and fear, uh, you write very eloquently and you say that the body reacts the same way to a threat to your ego as it does to actual j- danger to life and limb. We don't usually recognize how much tension we invest in simple activities such as talking or cooking because mm. we don't recognize the situation as stressful. So what do you mean by this? Well, you know, at this moment right now, I'm sitting in front of my computer pretending that I'm talking to an actual person when I'm really just staring at my computer screen and I'm being broadcast live worldwide. Mm-hmm. And there is a little bit of fear in, in me about my pulse rate is a little bit high. I don't want to look bad. I want to come across. I want your viewers to, you know, to think well of me, to have a good impression, to think that I know what I'm talking about. So it's happening right now, mm-hmm. you know, and anytime. I mean, I've been teaching since 1992, you know, however many, 30 years. And, you know, if I'm in front of strangers, especially in person, I still get anxious because there's this risk, you know, there's this, okay, did I prepare enough? Am I prepared? Do I know what I'm (laughs) going to say? What if somebody asked me about something I don't know the answer to, right? Right, right. So, you know, that's an example of what I mean. Does that make sense as an answer? Oh, yeah, it does. I mean, uh, firstly, thanks a lot for being vulnerable because a lot of people say, you know, they don't they don't portray or they don't show that side of themselves that is maybe a bit fearful or or even scared, even though, right, arguably and through your book, you know so much and you've studied so much and you've researched and you work with so many people. So what do you do then when you have this sense of fear, maybe not logical, but in your body, you hold that fear? What is your process of pushing past that and I don't know, changing your stage or something like that so that you can show up for your students or for your listeners in a different way? Well, like right now in this moment, you know, I can't like go in the next room and do a practice, right? So my, so what I do right now in this moment is that I accept it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the only real way to escape suffering, stress, mm-hmm. anxiety is to stop trying to escape. If you accept it, it's like, okay. Actually, what I try to do is I try to not label it. I'm having a physical sensation. Okay, I could feel my heart beating. I feel that I'm not breathing slowly, a little bit shallow, but I don't have to go to the next step and say, oh, I'm stressed, I'm anxious, right? If I can just feel what I'm feeling, if mm-hmm. I'm open to feeling what I'm feeling, and I don't judge it to be a bad thing, you know, by labeling, oh, God, I'm freaking out. I'm stressing out. I'm getting anxious. You know what happens yep. if I do that? Yeah, I start getting more stressed out and more anxious. <laughs> That's true. Because I'm spinning a story. Mm-hmm. I'm spinning a story about what I'm feeling. Yeah. And then that story affects my nervous system and creates more faster heart rate and you know more disordered breathing you know because this is one thing that's 
magical and special about the breath, you know, and why I say that the breath is superior in my mind anyway, yeah. to talk therapy. Like, I mean, I do mantra, but it's tied to breathing. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is that if you try to combat stress or deal with stress cognitively with words, it's not as effective as if you come out of your thinking mind into feeling your breathing. Yeah. Because it just by making that shift, you know, that's Dan Brule's drop it technique, right? Yeah. Just take a big breath in, hold it for a second, hold it, tense everything up, and then go, so much better. And I love in, the, in your book, you sort of differentiate between stress and distress. Right? Not all forms of stress are bad for you. In fact, some stress might actually be good for you. It's like when you go to the gym, you stress your muscles, your fibers, and that's how you grow. In the same way, if you remember before this, we were going to do a Zoom interview, not live. It has sensed that I want some some of that stress, the stress of feeling as if people are watching <laughs> this interview. Right, yeah, because yeah, yeah. You yeah. sort of get high, you get used to that kind of a little bit, you know, stress, just like you're walking onto the stage. And once you are used to live streams, then, you know, the just recording of video doesn't do it for you. And so to your mm -hmm. point. So in other words, you have to keep tolerance and you have to increase the dosage. I know from a yogic standpoint, that's not good because they say, don't seek the high, enjoy the high, but then seek the reduction of fluctuation of thoughts, right? That's, you know, you should not seek the high, so to speak, but enjoy it. But, but yeah. But the truth is that to me, peak performance, if yeah. you're interested in peak performance, yeah. stress is invaluable. It is. I mean, I don't feel, you know, I, I, it's one reason I work out on the treadmill. I don't feel completely awake until my heart rate goes above 120. That's very true. Yeah. The sluggishness kind of disappears. I'm with it. I'm in, I'm not lagging behind myself. So, and I think this is why resilience and increasing resilience mm -hmm. is much more important than reducing stress. In other words, if I wanted to reduce the stress in my life, I could go live under a rock, never go on social media, never listen to the news. And that's one way to deal with stress. But I don't really want to do that because there's stuff that I want to do and there's fun and there's challenge. You know, I'm fairly ambitious. And in order to achieve the things that I want to achieve, I have to be able to deal with stress, right? Mm -hmm. And so the more you embrace stress and see stress as a useful energy, I mean, stress and anxiety are just energy, they're energy states. Mm -hmm. And so the trick is to learn to take that elevated energy state, that rajasic state, mm -hmm. and convert it, you know, use it as your fuel, right? I'm sorry, I, I think maybe I interrupted you because you were talking about that you are bored now with Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the same thing is it's the same idea, right? It's like to what you're saying is to tap into that, that stress or that increased energy and learn how you can just like a surfer, ride the wave, and there will be instances where you crash and the wave will go down, but then you need to build your resilience. Mm -hmm. So that you can come back again, and wait for the next wave. And then all throughout not be attached 
to the high that you get from the wave? That's a tough one. Yeah. Cause it's, it's very, um, I mean, the buzz, you know, yeah. I fell in love my first Kundalini yoga class. I fell in love with the buzz, man. Yeah. <laughs> I still love it. Yeah. So, you know, you have to be okay with crashing and burning and getting up again and, you know, doing it again. And sometimes the surfing is smooth and sometimes it's exhilarating and sometimes it sucks, you know, because <laughs> you uh, bomb out and you can't stay up. That's very true. I'm reading this book, uh, The Art of Impossibility by Stephen Kotler. And he's got a background in surfing and he talks a lot about flow and he uses a lot of these metaphors in talking about the importance of riding the wave. And in this book particularly, he talks more about resilience, which he's sort of missed in the previous books. And he says that it's important to be resilient. It's so important to build that inner fortitude so that when you crash and burn, you're able to increase your capacity. Just like what you write in your book, stress can be dealt with in two ways. Either you reduce the stress from outside, which is in many cases almost impossible, or you increase your capacity through your practice. And speaking about practice, you know, you, you talk about breath inquiry. You say you cannot control something you cannot measure. Before you can measure breath, you have to observe it. Before attempting to control your breathing, you need to observe it, feel it, experience it, and then measure it. So could you talk to us a bit about the significance of, or maybe how you go about measuring it and, you know, improving it, so to speak? What is your practice like? Well, there are so many different measurable elements about breathing. You know, the basics would be, what is your lung volume? You know, how much can you breathe in? I mean, I haven't used it in quite a while, but I have a spirometer, mm -hmm. you know, where you blow into it to see how high the little ball goes in the thing to, you know, tell you how many milliliters you can breathe out at one time. You know, that's a simple measure. Okay. You know, um, breath holding is another, well, let me back up a step because, you know, the more basic ones are your breath rate, how many times you breathe a minute. And it seems to me, I think I've seen enough evidence that I think this really is true that the medical profession if you look at what average or normal breath rate is, it used to be 12 to 15. Right. Now it's 15 to 20. So it's increased. Yes. And this is just a pet theory of mine, but I think that the average breath rate worldwide is going up. People mm -hmm. are breathing faster, breathing more shallow. I think it's just a trend. And I think that's a very basic, important measure that that doctors don't measure that, you know, like if you go into the doctor's office and they take your vital signs, right? Mm -hmm. They take your blood pressure, heart rate, how much do you weigh? And they do take your blood oxygen thing, you know, mm -hmm. little clamp to measure how much oxygen's in your blood. And that's it. They don't, Yeah, it's just not on the map. I had one instance one time that really surprised me when I was in the triage center in a hospital is a minor thing, but, you know, take my vital signs and this male nurse actually measured my breath rate. Mm -hmm. And I was so surprised. I said, you know, no one's ever done this before. This is like, why did you do this? We had a little conversation, you know, and so I asked him, I said, what is normal breath rate? Because I told him I teach about breathing and so, so on and so forth. And his answer was, it depends on where you are. What okay. he said, different cities and different regions have different numbers for what 
normal breath rate should be. I had never heard of such a thing, Mm -hmm. right? So anyway, the point is measuring breath. How do I measure breath or what my practice is? So, you know, how many breaths per minute? You know, Yogi Bhajan said that if you can slow your breathing down Mm -hmm. on average to four breaths per minute, that you will, it will make you, you will cultivate increased intuition, super intuition, or I forget the word he used, but something like that. So there are so many benefits to slowing the breath rate down, you know, in coherent breathing, coherent breathing teaches six breaths per minute, Mm -hmm. five or six breaths per minute, because at that pace of about six breaths per minute, your breathing cycle rhythm, like a sine wave actually comes into phase with your heart rhythm Mm -hmm. and you know your breathing rhythm and your heart rhythm come into coherence into phase with each other and everything starts to work better Mm -hmm. your heart your heart doesn't have to work as hard the the movements of your diaphragm actually help modulate your blood pressure and from there it cascades into better immune function uh, all kinds of things that just come from this pace which is called the heart's resonant frequency. So anyway, maybe that's enough about breath rates. You know, like what I'm breath holding is another important one. You know, there's you know there's holding in and there's holding out and there's a there's a buteco test. How long can you hold your breath out? And they say that if you can't comfortably hold your breath out for 30 seconds that it's an indication of something. I forget what they say, but yeah, so holding in, holding out slowing it down. Okay, here's an interesting one that I'm just finding out about. I met a, um, I wish I had his book here, doctor. I met him recently. He's a, long story short, he's doing this really interesting research on saliva. Have you ever noticed that when you do breath practice or mantra practice, you get all this saliva in your mouth, Mm -hmm. have to swallow. And what he's finding is that there are some interesting, significant chemical changes in the saliva. Mm-hmm. That's about all I, you know, I can't articulate much more about it, but that's another measurement that's uh, sort of cutting edge. And there's, yeah, I think maybe that's enough. So that's definitely very, very fascinating. It is interesting how we're able to use such different measurements and systems and devices, right, to measure things like our breath volume or maybe the rate at which we are breathing. And like you pointed out, in general, the slower we breathe, the better it is for our health outcomes compared to breathing faster. And there was one story I heard where the ancient yogis, the rishis like from thousands of years back, used to a lot of times look at nature and observe the different animals and what they noticed was a correlation or maybe a causation between breath times and how long an, an animal could live. And they noticed that mm-hmm. maybe rodents and rabbits were, you know, most of the time breathing really quickly. And so they live shorter. Whereas if you see like an elephant or maybe a tortoise really slow, you don't even notice that they're breathing and they do tend to live longer. Maybe not all of it is translatable transferable to humans. But in general, uh, like you pointed out, what we're noticing is if we breathe slowly, six uh, seconds per, right? Uh, six times per minute is six seconds in, six seconds out. Six seconds, seconds. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, well, that's yeah. five breaths per minute. Five to six um, you know, breaths per yeah. minute. So yeah, yeah. And I also try to, you know, maintain that or to even you know, decrease that even more. Take some practice, right? <laughs> yeah. And 
you know, in modern terms, I think what they were talking about was the faster you breathe, it's usually because your sympathetic nervous system is increasing in tone. You know, it seems obvious to me that the reason that globally breathing rates are increasing is because of chronic stress, chronic mm -hmm. sympathetic nervous system dominance. Yeah. That, you know, uncertainty, worry, anxiety, stress, those are all labels for different flavors of sympathetic overstimulation. Mm -hmm. And by slowing your breathing down, breathing more calmly and rhythmically, and that tamps down the sympathetic overstimulation, stimulates your parasympathetic. Because, you know, there's so many lifestyle diseases that are attributed, caused by chronic overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And even back, I don't know if you're familiar with Swara, Swara Yoga? Swara, from what I understand, is, is sound, right? Swara. I've not mm -hmm. heard about Swara no. Yoga in particularly. Swara Yoga is this branch. It has a lot to do with uh, which nostril, mm -hmm. alternate nostril, you know, Ida Pingala, uh, the nostril dominance changes mm -hmm. during the day. Yeah. And in Swara Yoga, it says that if your right nostril is dominant mm -hmm. too much of the time, Mm -hmm. And right nostril is associated with sympathetic, mm -hmm. left nostril with parasympathetic. Even back, I don't know how many thousands of years ago that was, but even then they were saying if your right nostril is dominant a certain amount of time, basically you, you don't have long to live that, or I'm overstating it, but that you're going to get sick. You're something's bad is going to happen. You're going to, that it's not good for your health. Yeah. And of course, I'm sort of making this up, but I think that that was their intuitive understanding of that the sympathetic nervous system is really designed for periodic short bursts. When mm -hmm. you need that fight or flight response, it'll save your life. But if it becomes chronic and you spend your days in the chronic stress state, mm -hmm. it can destroy your health. And so to me, that's why predominantly, especially yogic breathing techniques, focus on calming techniques. You know, even teaching alternate nostrils, even if you're doing even, you know, right and left, mm -hmm. a lot of teachers teach it, inhale four, exhale six, right? All this emphasis on increasing the length of the exhale because it's soothing to the sympathetic, stimulates the parasympathetic, all that. You know, like you pointed out, there's so much of uncertainty that's going on in the world right now. There's so much of stress and so much of social media noise and people are losing jobs and people are forced to take decisions that might or might not be in their interest. And so, and a lot of people are going through uh, their own version of the dark night of the soul as, as well. And, and in your book, you mentioned, sometimes you find yourself in a place where you're conflicted about trying to give it your best and pushing through versus just accepting whatever mm -hmm. has come into your life, right? And so this conflict creates even more stress distress, depression, anxiety, right? And so you write about the serenity prayer, but maybe if you can tell us a bit more about this state that people find themselves in, what's the right way? Oh, now you're going to ask me for what's the right way. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, if I could answer that, you know, that's the conundrum, isn't it? Mm -hmm. About Especially about the serenity prayer, because I think most of us, well, I know I can do acceptance, 
quite well. I can do change quite well. It's deciding, okay, on this decision, on this situation, on this relationship, which one, you know, and no one can tell you, you have to just make up your own mind and live with the consequences. But I mean, wisdom is such a funny word. It's not given much value or it's not something that we actively pursue. You know, Mm -hmm. we pursue a job, money, stuff, but this, you know, this idea of personal growth and sort of climbing the ladder to being a mature human being, (laughs) to being a full, a fully realized human being Mm -hmm. is not very popular, I don't think. And I think the only way that wisdom is gained or won or developed basically is through these dark nights of the soul. I don't think anybody can hand it to you. I don't think there's any way to buy it. I don't think there's any way to read about it. And and this gets us into the topic of the transformative journey, the hero's Mm -hmm. journey, Mm -hmm. transformative learning theory, actually more my interest than, it's the one that cuts through all of them, breath, art, writing, you know, that because, you know, here's the deal. You know, the reason that the climate is in the mess it's in, the reason that wars are happening, the reason that everything's happening is because of what's in here, Mm -hmm. in this individual and that individual and that individual. And therefore, the only way out, the only way to, you know, save the planet, to have a future that we Mm -hmm. want to have is what's in here has to change. And that's to me is um, that is the real need. That's the real need. That's the real imperative, you know, Mm -hmm. the evolutionary imperative for, you know, and it happens one person at a time. And it's like upgrading your OS, upgrading your operating system. You know, one of the big lessons that I had to learn, you know how they say the truth will set you free. Mm -hmm. But first, it's really going to piss you off. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had to come to grips with the fact that I was really good at blaming other people Mm -hmm. for the things I didn't like about my life. And that's hard to give up because as long as I could blame that person and that person and that person, I was off the hook. It wasn't my fault. Mm -hmm. But once I saw it, and it was quite ugly when I saw it, what I was doing, this game I was playing, you know. But once I saw it and I owned it, said, yeah, this is me. I've I've done, I've built this life. I've created this whole web. Mm -hmm. Then I could make different choices. As long as you like being a victim and not being responsible, you're Mm -hmm. not going to make those choices to change it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. A couple of pointers based on what you've shared. I think, uh, you know, society today, I think globally, has lost its focus on wisdom and the focus is too much on information acquisition. What ends up happening is we celebrate and praise those that have in a short period of time acquired certain amount of information and knowledge. And that's why you have these 30 under 30, 20 under 20, right? But what we're missing out on is drawing wisdom from the elders and the people that have gone before us and have either won a lot of things or have lost it, but have developed a certain perspective of our life. But instead we 
you know, allow them to go to old age homes and places like that. And we're missing out, I feel, on that rich energy that can nourish the young generation so that we can, you know, as humanity, develop more presence. Maybe it's for men or whatever it is that we need, right? That wisdom, I feel, is missing. And it's coming more, more and more as we, you know, come together collectively and we have these, you know, breathwork ceremonies, meditation, and we really interchange ideas and learn from our elders, right? Uh, So that was one. But the other thing I mentioned, and I've lost my train of thought. What was the other thing you were asking me? <laughs> well, you know, we're talking about the serenity prayer. And, uh, you know, I uh, just this morning, there was this uh, little story on uh, NPR about bonobos. Yeah. Um, the difference between chimpanzees and bonobos. Yeah. You know, chimpanzees are rajasic. They're, energy. Chimpanzees murder each other and they're greedy and selfish and vindictive. Bonobos are cooperative, empathetic. They share. And they make love. A lot. A lot of love. <laughs> a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. <laughs> and also that the bonobos, are it's a matriarchy, whereas the mm. chin, it's a patriarchy. Right. Did you hear that part? <laughs> I didn't know that part, no. <laughs> but the reason I bring this up is that I'm really curious because polyvagal theory says that what makes humans and higher mammals, Mm -hmm. the reason we have this capacity for empathy and bonding and cooperation um, and romance and all of those special interpersonal things that lower animals don't seem to have is the ventral, ventral vagal system. Yeah. And I'm really curious, I don't know if they've anybody's doing this or not, but it would be really interesting if they had some way of telling if the bonobos had a stronger ventral vagal than the chimps do. Because, And the reason I'm bringing this up is because, and, and again, this is just a pet theory. I have no evidence for this whatsoever. Yeah. But we're talking about wisdom. And I think the ventral vagal is the circuitry of wisdom. Interesting. Um, I, I think that if it weren't for the ventral and what it makes possible, there wouldn't be any wisdom. And again, yeah. this is just a crazy, you know, thought bubble. But yeah. you know, it's reasonable. It, it you know, it makes some kind of logical sense. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. This, this is what I'm trying to. This is what I'm writing about in the book. I'm trying to finish now. Is this the Serenity Prayer, which is serenity, courage, and wisdom. And then the three branches of the autonomic system, which is the sympathetic and the dorsal and the ventral. Mm-hmm. And then the three kinds of breath practice that correspond with those, which is stimulating practices, calming practices, and balancing practices. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised just to you know echo your thoughts of whether they are going to find out that or not. Because if you look at what Elon Musk is doing, he is uh, trying to figure out whether he can plant something called Neuralink in the human brain. Have you heard of that? So that he can capture some of our thoughts and emotions. And he's going down a pretty dangerous uh, path, I think, where I think one of his goals is to, after a person dies, he is able to build some kind of artificial intelligence that remembers the person. And then the question becomes, if you might be able to objectively create the person, but consciousness is such a subjective experience, right? And they've already you know, done something with chimpanzees where in one of the YouTube videos, 
apparently a chimpanzee becomes smarter or plays, plays some kind of ping pong game with the neural link in its brain. So they're doing some kind of tests wow. and experiments. But a lot of this, I feel, goes down a pretty slippery slope. And then you have the whole question about ethics and integrity. What's right and what's wrong? How much can you experiment? And how much can you play guard? Because I feel also a lot of these billionaires, because they've got so much money, they've got other things that are, you know, uh, motivating them now, like the fate of humanity and what role can I play in that, right? Uh, but it's pretty interesting. I hope uh, we somehow ethically find the answer as well. And I'm really fascinated by the poly vagal theory maybe we can't go in it too much and maybe we'll have to do another episode but for listeners who are curious right now could you talk to us about the three branches that you spoke about you spoke about the ventral the dorsal and the sympathetic right yes i first heard about polyvagal theory i guess in 2015 i was at a conference and uh dr dan siegel uh (laughs) suggested that we all check out polyvagal theory dr stephen porges p-o-r-g-e-s He's the creator or originator of polyvagal theory. And, you know, the first of all, the autonomic nervous system is that part of the nervous system that basically runs on automatic okay. that controls your vegetative functions or, you know, your heartbeat, your digestion, your breathing, all of the things that operate unconsciously automatically. That's what the autonomic nervous system mainly does. And usually the first thing that people learn about the autonomic nervous system is that there are two branches, sympathetic and parasympathetic, right? Mm -hmm. And your sympathetic is fight or flight, and your parasympathetic is rest and digest. And the vagus nerve Mm -hmm. is the main component of the parasympathetic system. Mm -hmm. The vagus nerve is, I think, the longest nerve in the body. It's called vagus because vagus means wanderer, and the vagus nerve wanders through the body, basically connecting, I don't know if every organ, but pretty much all of the different all of the organs. And so the vagus nerve is the main component of the parasympathetic nervous system, which again is rest and digest. And what Dr. Purgus discovered is that the vagus nerve is not one, it's actually two. Mm-hmm. And not two separate nerves, but two different layers or functions. I'm not quite clear on, you know, physically what this two is. But the main thing is that these two, these two happened at different times in evolution. Mm -hmm. That the dorsal is the older. It actually came before the sympathetic, as I understand it. The dorsal is, simplest way to, to explain it is that like in a possum, an opossum, if an opossum is threatened by a snake, a dog, a bear, or something, the opossum collapses and pretends to be dead. Yeah. That's called playing possum. Mm-hmm. Okay. That is a reflex response. And that's the dorsal. Okay. That's the oldest survival strategy is to play dead. But that's still part of the parasympathetic? Yes. That's the old part of the sympathetic. The ventral is the new part of the sympathetic, which is more recent, which is why only apparent, if I understand this correctly, only higher mammals and mm-hmm. humans have this ventral system. It's newer, it's faster, and it has a quite different function. Mm-hmm. And what Porges says basically is that this ventral vagal complex is the wiring, is the hardware that makes possible social engagement, empathy, 
intimacy, bonding, all of these pro-social behaviors rely on, were made possible by the ventral vagal system. So that's in a nutshell, that's polyvagal theory. Of course, there's a lot more to it than that. And there's even arguments and criticisms about whether it's accurate or not. There are naysayers. But to me, it doesn't really matter because what really matters is that this conceptual model has given rise to like clinical practices of like teaching people, teaching individuals to start to recognize like earlier when I said, you know, I'm a little anxious, nervous being on camera and la la la, right? My heart's beating a little fast and Mm -hmm. you know, that's my sympathetic. I recognize that that's sympathetic arousal. When you start to recognize the different flavors and feelings between dorsal, sympathetic and vague and ventral, mm-hmm. then you can start to see, well, this is how I breathe when I'm stressed out and sympathetic. This is how I breathe when I'm in dorsal, which is probably going to be more depressed breathing or just quiescent breathing, like sleeping, you know, because sleeping is dorsal, mm-hmm. right? And your breathing gets a certain way. It gets very small. And the ventral, when you start to recognize that you're in ventral, you can start to cultivate pro-social engagement by learning what that feels like and how to breathe to increase it. You know, basically the way I, one way that I try to explain it is that, okay, when I'm in dorsal, I feel like Eeyore. When Mm -hmm. I'm in sympathetic, I feel like Tigger. Mm -hmm. And when I'm in ventral, I feel like Wendy the Pooh, you know, and that's, you know, those characters surprisingly fit quite well with these three behavior modes. You know, there are different behavior modes. Did that kind of uh, answer your question about a brief introduction to polyvagal? That definitely makes sense. And I love the imagery that you conjured up as well, because I can see how each of these states is corresponds with a pattern of breathing, right? So if it's dorsal, it's more freeze because you want to keep yourself self safe from the predator and then if yeah. it's sympathetic it's fight or flight you just run away your blood pressure goes up um right because and your breathing gets fast and shallow and rapid is fast. Yes. cortisol levels go up endorphins adrenaline that kind of thing but then when you have the ventral it's like a higher level of cognition where you stay in that danger but then you change your breathing and you're able to slowly diffuse the situation without having to run away or freeze because you're breathing in a very balanced, coherent manner. And like you start your book, where you were confronted by the people with the guns on your on your cheek, you're able to, in the midst of crises or in the midst of that storm, you're able to navigate through life's difficulties just by the way you breathe. And I love what you mentioned in your book. You say ventral control produces a unique state wherein the sympathetic and dorsal branches are highly charged at the same time. I associate such a state with my personal experience of ratified presence, moments when I felt ecstatically blissful. A profound stillness accompanies skilled action and the feeling of flow accompanies absolute emptiness. I call this unitive experience, the centered storm. So as we are closing today's interview, could you give us a glimpse into what's the benefit of being in this state of flow, of being in that centered storm? And what is your go-to technique perhaps, or your approach for entering this state, which I'm sure people listening to this episode would benefit from uh, being in? (laughs) Yeah, I remember again hearing from Dr. Dan Siegel 
I had never heard this said this way before. He's he was the first one I heard say that mm -hmm. the optimum state is when both sympathetic and dorsal are elevated and yet balanced, which is why alternate nostril breathing is perfect for that. You know, like in the guna system, like Ra Tama's Rajasattva, you have to increase your energy with like stimulating breath to bring up the Raja's energy, but then you have to balance it so that it doesn't explode. You don't mm -hmm. want the energy just to keep going up because then you'll get crazy. So you temper it, you know, with alternate nostril breathing or coherent breathing or box breathing. Those are balancing techniques, you know, and they are not meant to bring your energy down. They're meant to keep it up, but keep it focused and so that you're present right in the center of whatever, mm. you know, whatever's happening in the moment that you can be right there with it and not run away or collapse. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for sharing that. And I'm sure our listeners now know that breathwork is not a one size fits all for everybody. There are different techniques, there are different states, and depending on what your goals are, you can go down the rabbit hole and learn about the nervous system and you know how you can really use your chemistry as well as your emotions and your spirituality to experience a more balanced and centered life and you know solve all the challenges that seem to appear in our life but thanks a lot for sharing all of that i wish we could go more because uh, you're coming with an upcoming book as well which whenever it's ready you can let me know and we can do a follow-up you know episode about that but before you go what is one thing that you're grateful for today and how can somebody listening to the show get a hold of your book <laughs> one thing i'm grateful for today is you and your show that's the obvious thing i'm grateful for you know i'm grateful for you know i don't know who to thank honestly for my taking an interest in all of these things as a teenager, you know, like, how did this happen? I was sort of the weird, the weird one, mm -hmm. you know, in the family. And, but I am grateful, however it happened, why ever it happened. I am definitely grateful for, you know, just getting interested in meditation, breath work, transformation. And, uh, I, and I'm grateful. Of course, the number one thing I do have to say I'm grateful for is mystery that we are sitting in right now. Mm -hmm. you know, this, I mean, just being alive and it's unexplainable. It's mm -hmm. just as much a mystery as it ever was. And mm -hmm. it's incredible just to be conscious of being conscious of <laughs> existence. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, how can people get a hold of my book? Amazon ebook, uh, Kindle version. There's a paperback version. There's an audiobook version on Amazon. Yeah, that's the simplest place to find it. Perfect. We'll have the link up in the show notes as well so that people can learn more about the things that you talk about and the principles and methods and practices that you share, especially at the end. Um, but thanks a lot for appearing on our show, talking to us about the spirit and science of breathwork and taking us one step closer to a human revolution. Thank you so much. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you for listening to My 7 Chakras at my7chakras.com. That is my S-E-V-E-N chakras.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.